Chapter Eighteen of Greenmantle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. Greenmantle by John Buckham. Chapter Eighteen. Sparrows on the Housetops. I've often regretted, said Blenkiron, that miracles have left off happening. He got no answer, for I was feeling the walls for something in the nature of a window. For I reckon, he went on, that it wants a good old-fashioned copper-bottom miracle to get us out of this fix. It's plumb against all my principles. I've spent my life using the talents God gave me to keep things from getting to the point of rude violence, and so far I've succeeded. But now you come along, Major, and you hustle a respectable middle-aged citizen into an aboriginal mix-up. It's mighty indelicate. I reckon the next move is up to you, for I'm no good at the housebreaking stunt. No more am I, I answered, but I'm hanged if I'll chuck up the sponge. Sandy's somewhere outside, and he's got a hefty crowd at his heels. I simply could not feel the despair which, by every law of common sense, was due to the case. The guns had intoxicated me. I could still hear their deep voices, though yards of wood and stone separated us from the upper air. What vexed us most was our hunger. Barring a few mouthfuls on the road, we had eaten nothing since the morning, and as our diet for the past days had not been generous we had some leeway to make up. Stum had never looked near us since we were shoved into the car. We had been brought to some kind of house and bundled into a place like a wine cellar. It was pitch dark, and after feeling round the walls, first on my feet and then on Peter's back, I decided that there were no windows. It must have been lit and ventilated by some lattice in the ceiling. There was not a stick of furniture in the place, nothing but a damp earth floor and bare stone sides. The door was a relic of the Iron Age, and I could hear the paces of a sentry outside it. When things get to the past that nothing you can do can better them, the only thing is to live for the moment. All three of us sought in sleep a refuge from our empty stomachs. The floor was the poorest kind of bed, but we rolled up our coats for pillows and made the best of it. Soon I knew by Peter's regular breathing that he was asleep, and I presently followed him. I was awakened by a pressure below my left ear. I thought it was Peter, for it is the old hunter's trick of waking a man so that he makes no noise. But another voice spoke. It told me that there was no time to lose and to rise and follow, and the voice was the voice of Hassin. Peter was awake, and we stirred Blankeron out of heavy slumber. We were bidden take off our boots and hang them by their laces round our necks as country boys do when they want to go barefoot. Then we tiptoed to the door, which was ajar. Outside was a passage with a flight of steps at one end which led to the open air. On these steps lay a faint shine of starlight, and by its help I saw a man huddled up at the foot of them. It was our sentry, neatly and scientifically gagged and tied up. The steps brought us to a little courtyard about which the walls of the house rose like cliffs. We halted while Hassan listened intently. Apparently the coast was clear, and our guide led us to one side, which was clothed by a stout wooden trellis. Once it may have supported fig trees, but now the plants were dead and only withered tendrils and rotten stumps remained. It was child's play for Peter and me to go up that trellis, but it was the deuce and all for Blankeron. He was in poor condition and puffed like a grampus, and he seemed to have no sort of head for heights. 
but he was as game as a buffalo and started in gallantly till his arms gave out and he fairly stuck so peter and i went up on each side of him taking an arm apiece as i had once seen done to a man with vertigo in the kloof chimney on table mountain i was mighty thankful when i got him panting on the top and hussein had shinned up beside us we crawled along a broadish wall with an inch or two of powdery snow on it and then up a sloping buttress onto the flat roof of the house it was a miserable business for Blenkiron, who would certainly have fallen if he could have seen what was below him, and Peter and I had to stand to attention all the time. Then began a more difficult job. Hussein pointed out a ledge which took us past the stack of chimneys to another building slightly lower, this being the route he fancied. At that I sat down resolutely and put on my boots, and the others followed. Frostbitten feet would be a poor asset in this kind of travelling. It was a bad step for Blenkiron, and we only got him past it by Peter and I spread-eagling ourselves against the wall and passing him in front of us with his face towards us. We had no grip, and if he had stumbled we should all three have been in the courtyard. But we got over it and dropped as softly as possible under the roof of the next house. Hussein had his finger on his lips, and I soon saw why, for there was a lighted window in the wall we had descended. Some imp prompted me to wait behind and explore. The others followed Hussein and were soon at the far end of the roof, where a kind of wooden pavilion broke the line, while I tried to get a look inside. The window was curtained and had two folding sashes which clasped in the middle. Through a gap in the curtain I saw a little lamp-lit room, and a big man sitting at a table littered with papers. I watched him, fascinated, as he turned to consult some document and made a marking on the map before him. Then he suddenly rose, stretched himself, cast a glance at the window, and went out of the room, making a great clatter in descending the wooden staircase. He left the door ajar and the lamp burning. I guessed he had gone to have a look at his prisoners, in which case the show was up. But what filled my mind was an insane desire to get a sight of his map. It was one of those mad impulses which utterly cloud right reason, a thing independent of any plan, a crazy leap in the dark. But it was so strong that I would have pulled that window out by its frame, if need be, to get to that table. There was no need, for the flimsy clasp gave it the first pull, and the sashes swung open. I scrambled in after listening for steps on the stairs. I crumpled up the map and stuck it in my pocket, as well as the paper from which I had seen him copying. Very carefully I removed all marks of my entry, brushed away the snow from the boards, pulled back the curtain, got out, and refastened the window. Still there was no sound of his return. Then I started off to catch up the others. I found them shivering in the roof pavilion. We've got to move pretty fast, I said, for I've just been burglaring old Stum's private cabinet. Hussein, my lad, do you hear that? They may be after us any moment, so I pray heaven we soon strike better going. Hussein understood. He led us at a smart pace from one roof to another, for here they were all of the same height, and only low parapets and screens divided them. We never saw a soul for a winter's night is not the time you choose to saunter on your housetop. I kept my ears open for trouble behind us, and in about five minutes I heard it. A riot of voices broke out with one louder than the rest, and, looking back, I saw lanterns waving. Stum had realized his loss and found the tracks of the thief. 
Hussein gave one glance behind and then hurried us on at breakneck pace with old Blenkeron gasping and stumbling. The shouts behind us grew louder, as if some eye quicker than the rest had caught our movement in the starlit darkness. It was very evident that if they kept up the chase we should be caught, for Blenkeron was about as useful on a roof as a hippo. Presently we came to a big drop with a kind of ladder down it, and at the foot a shallow ledge running to the left into a pit of darkness. Hussein gripped my arm and pointed down it. "'Follow it,' he whispered, "'and you will reach a roof which spans a street. Cross it, and on the other side is a mosque. Turn to the right there, and you will find easy going for fifty meters, well screened from the higher roofs. For Allah's sake, keep in the shelter of the screen. Somewhere there I will join you.' He hurried us along the ledge for a bit and then went back, and with snow from the corners covered up our tracks. After that he went straight on himself, taking strange short steps like a bird. I saw his game. He wanted to lead our pursuers after him, and he had to multiply the tracks and trust the Stumps fellows not spotting that they were all made by one man. But I had quite enough to think of in getting Blankeron along that ledge. He was pretty nearly foundered, he was in a sweat of terror, and as a matter of fact, he was taking one of the biggest risks of his life, for we had no rope, and his neck depended upon himself. I could hear him invoking some unknown deity called Holy Mike. But he ventured gallantly, and we got to the roof which ran across the street. That was easier, though ticklish enough, but it was no joke skirting the cupola of that infernal mosque. And last we found the parapet and breathed more freely, for we were now under shelter from the direction of danger. I spared a moment to look around, and thirty yards off across the street I saw a weird spectacle. The hunt was proceeding along the roofs parallel to the one we were lodged on. I saw the flicker of the lanterns waved up and down as the bearers slipped in the snow, and I heard their cries like hounds on a trail. Stum was not among them. He had not the shape for that sort of business. They passed us and continued to our left, now hid by a jutting chimney now clear to view against the skyline. The roofs they were on were perhaps six feet higher than ours, so even from our shelter we could mark their course. If Usin were going to be hunted across Erzurum, it was a bad lookout for us, for I hadn't the foggiest notion where we were or where we were going to. But as we watched we saw something more. The wavering lanterns were now three or four hundred yards away, but on the roofs just opposite us across the street there appeared a man's figure. I thought it was one of the hunters, and we all crouched lower, and then I recognized the lean agility of Hussein. He must have doubled back, keeping in the dust to the left of the pursuit, and taking big risks in the open places. But there he was now, exactly in front of us, and separated only by the width of the narrow street. He took a step backward, gathered himself for a spring, and leaped clean over the gap. Like a cat he lighted on the parapet above us and stumbled forward with the impetus right on our heads. We are safe for the moment, he whispered, but when they miss me they will return. We must make good haste. The next half hour was a maze of twists and turns, slipping down icy roofs and climbing icier chimney stacks. The stir of the city had gone and from the black streets below came scarcely a sound. But always the great tattoo of guns beat in the east. Gradually we descended to a lower level, till we emerged on the top of a shed in a courtyard. 
Hussin gave an odd sort of cry, like a demented owl, and something began to stir below us. It was a big covered wagon full of bundles of forage and drawn by four mules. As we descended from the shed into the frozen litter of the yard, a man came out of the shade and spoke low to Hussin. Peter and I lifted Blankeron into the cart and scrambled in beside him, and I never felt anything more blessed than the warmth and softness of that place after the frosty roofs. I had forgotten all about my hunger and only yearned for sleep. Presently the wagon moved out of the courtyard and into the dark streets. Then Blenkiron began to laugh, a deep internal rumble which shook him violently and brought down a heap of forage on his head. I thought it was hysterics, the relief from the tension of the past hour. But it wasn't. His body might be out of training, but there was never anything the matter with his nerves. He was consumed with honest merriment. Say, Major, he gasped, I don't usually cherish dislikes for my fellow men, but somehow I didn't cotton to Colonel Stumm. But now I almost love him. You hit his jaw very bad in Germany, and now you've annexed his private file, and I guess it's important, or he wouldn't have been so mighty set on steeplechasing over those roofs. I haven't done such a thing since I broke into neighbor Brown's woodshed to steal his tame possum, and that's forty years back. It's the first piece of genuine amusement I've struck in this game, and I haven't laughed so much since old Jim Hooker told the tale of Cousin Sally Dillard when we were hunting ducks in Michigan, and his wife's brother had an apoplexy in the night and died of it. To the accompaniment of Blankeron's chuckles, I did what Peter had done in the first minute, and fell asleep. When I woke it was still dark. The wagon had stopped in a courtyard which seemed to be shaded by great trees. The snow lay deeper here, and by the feel of the air we had left the city and climbed to higher ground. There were big buildings on one side, and on the other what looked like the lift of a hill. No lights were shown, the place was in profound gloom, but I felt the presence near me of others besides Hussin and the driver. We were hurried, Blenkeron only half awake, into an outbuilding, and then down some steps to a roomy cellar. There Hussin lit a lantern which showed what had once been a storehouse for fruit. Old husks still strewed the floor and the place smelled of apples. Straw had been piled in corners for beds, and there was a rude table and a divan of boards covered with sheepskins. "'Where are we?' I asked Hussin. "'In the house of the master,' he said. "'You will be safe here, but you must keep still till the master comes.' "'Is the Frankish lady here?' I asked. Hussin nodded, and from a wallet brought out some food, raisins and cold meat, and a loaf of bread. We fell on it like vultures, and as we ate, Hussin disappeared.' I noticed that he locked the door behind him. As soon as the meal was ended, the others returned to their interrupted sleep. But I was wakeful now, and my mind was sharp-set on many things. I got Blankeron's electric torch and lay down on the divan to study Stumm's map. The first glance showed me that I had lit on a treasure. It was the staff map of the Erzurum defenses, showing the forts and the field trenches, with little notes scribbled in Stumm's neat small handwriting. I got out the big map which I had taken from Blenkeron and made out the general lie of the land. I saw the horseshoe of De Verboyon to the east which the Russian guns were battering. Stumm's was just like the kind of squared artillery map we used in France, one in ten thousand, with spidery red lines showing the trenches, but with the difference that it was the Turkish trenches that were shown in detail 
and the Russian only roughly indicated. The thing was really a confidential plan of the whole Erzerum Ensemble, and would be worth untold gold to the enemy. No wonder Stum had been in a wax at its loss. The Deveo-Boen lines seemed to me monstrously strong, and I remembered the merits of the Turk as a fighter behind strong defences. It looked as if Russia were up against a second Plevna or a new Gallipoli. Then I took to studying the flanks. South lay the Palantukan range of mountains, with forts defending the passes where ran the roads to Mush and Lake Van. That side, too, looked pretty strong. North in the valley of the Euphrates I made out two big forts, Taft and Karagubek, defending the road from Olti. On this part of the map Stum's notes were plentiful, and I gave them all my attention. I remembered Blenkeron's news about the Russians advancing on a broad front, for it was clear that Stum was taking pains about the flank of the fortress. Karagubek was the point of interest. It stood on a rib of land between two peaks, which from the contour lines rose very steep. So long as it was held, it was clear that no invader could move down the Euphrates Glen. Stum had appended a note to the peaks, not fortified, and about two miles to the northeast there was a red cross and the name Prezhevalsky. I assumed that to be the farthest point yet reached by the right wing of the Russian attack. Then I turned to the paper from which Stumm had copied the jottings onto his map. It was typewritten and consisted of notes on different points. One was headed Karagubek and read, No time to fortify adjacent peaks. Difficult for enemy to get batteries there, but not impossible. This is the real point of danger, for if Prezhevalsky wins the peaks, Karagubek and Tafta must fall, and the enemy will be on the left rear of Duveboyon main position. I was soldier enough to see the tremendous importance of this note. On Karagubek depended the defense of Erzurum, and it was a broken reed if one knew where the weakness lay. Yet, searching the map again, I could not believe that any mortal commander would see any chance in the adjacent peaks, even if he thought them unfortified. That was information confined to the Turkish and German staff. But if it could be conveyed to the Grand Duke, he would have Erzurum in his power in a day. Otherwise he would go on battering at the Deveboy on Ridge for weeks, and long ere he won it the Gallipoli divisions would arrive, he would be outnumbered by two to one, and his chance would have vanished. My discovery set me pacing up and down that cellar in a perfect fever of excitement. I longed for wireless, a carrier pigeon, an aeroplane, anything to bridge over that space of half a dozen miles between me and the Russian lines. It was maddening to have stumbled on vital news and to be wholly unable to use it. How could three fugitives in a cellar, with the whole hornet's nest of Turkey and Germany stirred up against them, hope to send this message of life and death? I went back to the map and examined the nearest Russian positions. They were carefully marked. Prezhevalsky in the north, the main force beyond Deve Bouillon, and the southern columns up to the passes of the Palantukan, but not yet across them. I could not know which was nearest to us till I discovered where we were. And as I thought of this, I began to see the rudiments of a desperate plan. It depended on Peter, now slumbering like a tired dog on a couch of straw. Hussein had locked the door, and I must wait for information till he came back but suddenly I noticed a trap in the roof, which had evidently been used for raising and lowering the cellar stores. 
It looked ill-fitting and might be unbarred, so I pulled the table below it and found that, with a little effort, I could raise the flap. I knew I was taking immense risks, but I was so keen on my plan that I disregarded them. After some trouble I got the thing pried open, and catching the edges of the hole with my fingers, raised my body and got my knees on the edge. It was the outbuilding of which our refuge was the cellar, and it was half filled with light. Not a soul was there, and I hunted about till I found what I wanted. This was a ladder leading to a sort of loft, which in turn gave access to the roof. Here I had to be very careful, for I might be overlooked from the high buildings. But by good luck there was a trellis for grapevines across the place, which gave a kind of shelter. Lying flat on my face, I stared over a great expanse of country. Looking north I saw the city in a haze of morning smoke, and beyond the plain of the Euphrates and the opening of the glen where the river left the hills. Up there among the snowy heights were Tafta and Karagoubek. To the east was the ridge of Deve-Bouan where the mist was breaking before the winter sun. On the roads up to it I saw transport moving, I saw the circle of the inner forts, but for a moment the guns were silent. South rose a great wall of white mountain which I took to be the Palantuken. I could see the roads running to the passes and the smoke of camps and horse lines right under the cliffs. I had learned what I needed. We were in the outbuildings of a big country house two or three miles south of the city. The nearest point of the Russian front was somewhere in the foothills of the Palantuken. As I descended I heard, thin and faint and beautiful, like the cry of a wild bird, the muezzin from the minarets of Erzurum. When I dropped through the trap the others were awake. Hussein was setting food on the table and viewing my descent with anxious disapproval. It's all right, I said. I won't do it again, for I've found out all I wanted. Peter, old man, the biggest job of your life is before you. End of chapter 18. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.